All right, we're back in Genesis today, chapter 26. And one of the sure signs of saving faith is obedience to God's word and will. Now, we've seen this truth displayed in our study in the life of Abraham. It's through faith in God's promise that righteousness was imputed to him, just as when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior, and knowing, of course, that he is the fulfillment of God's promise of redemption. And the result of that faith is a journey of walking with the Lord uh, in obedience to his will. And we found that from the time Abraham left his home of Ur of the Chaldees, he was marked by the obedience of faith. As he trusted God with his life, the Lord fulfilled his covenant promises that would eventually pass down through successive generations. Was Abraham's uh, faith and obedience perfect? No, it was not. But no person is ever going to achieve that goal in this life. He showed weakness and failure of faith on occasions, but he always returned to the Lord and grew in his walk of obedience, even as we should. We come now to the next stage in the progress of God's covenant blessings. In Genesis 25, it was conveyed to us the miraculous birth of Isaac, the son that God promised to Abraham. And through him, the covenant promise of many descendants and nations that would bless all humanity moves forward. Now, chapter 26 kind of interrupts the narrative that was begun at the end of chapter 25 in the life of Jacob, how he deceived his brother and uh, got the, uh, the, the blessing as far as the birthright's concerned. So it's kind of out of chronological order, but it gives us some important uh, aspects of the man Isaac. And the narrative follows very closely to things that happened in the life of his father Abraham, if you compare this with chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. We might say, like father, like son. Both men experienced a famine which caused them to head down toward Egypt. Both of them received the promise of descendants and land and blessing from God, Both of them concocted a story of deceit to protect them in a foreign land. Both of them faced conflict and were blessed through it. And both of them erected altars in worship of God and made treaties with a king named Abimelech. This comparison shows us something important. That is, God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and then into the future. But obedience also figures into the blessing. So there's many spiritual lessons taught from this passage about faithful obedience and God's blessing. So let's ask God to bless us as we look at these things. Our Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful as we come to your word today, uh, even in the Old Testament, of the truths that are taught us about our walk with you. We're thankful that when we put our faith and trust in your salvation, uh, we are assured that we have the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. 
But Lord, we also realize that places great responsibility on us to be obedient to your word, and you've supplied your spirit to help us to do that as well. So Lord, as we look into the life of Isaac today, who in many ways copied his father, help us to be encouraged, to be uh, thankful for our heritage, and also be involved uh, as we raise our children and grandchildren for the Lord, to realize that, that blessings to the next generation are often dependent upon our, our own obedience to your word. So we ask you, Lord, to bless and guide us today as we look into your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 26 falls into two sections. The first 11 verses give us the circumstances of God's promise to Abraham, which is now handed down to Isaac, and also Isaac's failure as he dwells in Gerar. It also stresses for us the obedience of Abraham. Then from verse 12 down to verse 33, we have a display of how God blessed Isaac in spite of conflict and made him at peace with his enemies. So let's take a look, first of all, at uh, verses 1 through 11, where we see faithful obedience brings blessing to successive generations. And the first thing we find here in the first six verses is that through Abraham's obedience, the promise of blessing passes to his son, Isaac. And we find in verse 1, that are the, these few verses here, that the Lord is appearing to Isaac uh, as he appeared previously to Abraham. The circumstances are given in verse 1. There was a famine in the land. Well, what caused Abraham to go down into Egypt in his day? There was a famine in the land. But this is a different one. It's a different story. Some people have uh, felt that they're so, so close in similarity to what happened to Abraham. It's really one story told in a different way. But no, uh, there's enough to tell us here. This is a completely different story. It's just closely related to Abraham. Now, uh, as he uh, begins his journey, we're told that Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, we've run into this name Abimelech before. He's probably the son or maybe the grandson of the Abimelech who dealt with Abraham. We know this is not a personal name. It's rather a royal title that means my father is king. So it was a, a kingly type of name. Now, while he's in Gerar, the Lord appears to Isaac. And this echoes that story of the Lord's first appearance to Abraham when he arrived in Canaan. So the Lord instructs Isaac not to go down to Egypt, but to live in the land. And verse 3, when he says, dwell in this land and I'll be with you, it seems to indicate he should stay there in Gerar for a period of time until the Lord moves him elsewhere. The verb to dwell is a command, and it also alludes to having a temporary residence without ownership, and that's the situation that Isaac finds himself in. So it wasn't God's will for him to stay in this region permanently, but he doesn't want him to go down into Egypt. The Lord then repeats to Isaac the same promises given to Abraham where we see here the first of five blessings in this chapter. The Lord promises to be with Isaac, 
to bless him if he will obey his instructions. So as he uh, appears to him, he says everything he's going to do for Isaac, this really pretty close to the, um, uh, the oath that he gave to his father Abraham. So he's going to have descendants. He is going to have descendants that will occupy this land, including the land of his present sojourn. He's going to fulfill everything he promised to Abraham now in his son Isaac. So he's going to have a multitude of descendants, a land in which they can live. He's going to have prowess over his enemies. And ultimately, uh, all nations will be blessed through him. Now, as we come down a little bit farther, the reason for this blessing is associated with the obedience of Abraham. And it really assumes the, uh, the uh, obedience of Isaac. Note verse 5. All these things are going to take place. All of them are going to happen because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So because Abraham listened to the voice of God and was obedient to everything that God uh, instructed him, the promise can be passed on to the next generation. Uh, so Abraham is important here because he is showing the truth that if you're going to receive God's blessing, then you need to walk in obedience to his instructions. And what's striking here is the words that are used to convey this that are words we don't really find until we come to the law of God, which wasn't given until centuries after this. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1, you have almost exactly the same terms occurring that you find here uh, as Moses is instructing the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land and conquer it. And it's likely that Moses used these words of Abraham because they would be familiar to Israel when they would read them in this context of the law and then going in to conquer the land. And so in a sense, Abraham, long before the law was even written, was obedient to it because it was written on his heart and he was obeying the, princi uh, the principles of it before God officially even gave them. So he's used uh, later on as an example of faithful obedience to the word of God. Now we come to verse 6 and we find that Isaac does follow the path of his father. He obeys the Lord because he dwells in Gerar. He stays where God said he need to be. Unfortunately, uh, Something not too great is going to happen while he's there. But as we look at this uh, aspect of faithful obedience, we find that Isaac cannot rest upon his father's laurels, his father's faith, his father's obedience. This has to be grasped by himself. It has to come into his own life by faith and obedience. So this teaches us the importance of, of living faithfully before God as parents, it's more likely 
that successive generations will come to Christ, will live for Christ, if they have a good example through their progenitors. It's not always so, but it usually is. It's a great blessing when your children grow up and they follow the Lord, they become faithful, they become obedient. That's going to be connected to what they observe in your life. It's also a great heartache when children go their own way and they reject the exposure they had to faithful obedience. But usually uh, it goes the other way when they've had a good background and uh, good examples given to them. Now, as the story continues, we unfortunately see that Isaac does the same type of thing his father Abraham did in a situation where he lacked faith and he lacked obedience to God's will. We find here in verse 7 that the men of the place asked about his wife. Okay, so the stranger comes in and uh, he's going to have contact with the people of the land. Uh, Gerar is actually a city, and we're talking about the, the, the area of land, the region around it, that would be suitable for raising uh, flocks and herds and planting crops, which he later does. But they see that he has a beautiful wife, indicated in verse 7. And when they're inquiring about uh, Rebecca, uh, uh, they're inquiring about her availability for marriage. Well, she's already married. Uh, but he's afraid that they're going to kill him like Abraham was afraid because of her beauty. So she, he says, well, she's my sister. Now, in Abraham's case, that was at least a half-truth. But now it's a complete lie. She wasn't his sister, but he's afraid for his life. So he's going to uh, deceive the people there into thinking that she's not his wife, but his sister. So in order to protect himself from perceived harm, nothing's happened, Isaac lied. The fear of possible harm often causes us to lie, doesn't it? I remember one time in high school, we were taking a math test. I was having a hard time with one of the problems, and I looked over to my friend sitting on the opposite side of me in the aisle, and I asked him if he was done with his test. He shook his head, and I said, what did you get for number so-and-so? Well, the teacher wasn't in the room, but unknown to me, the teacher was looking through the window in the room, and when he saw me talking to my friend, he rushed in and started giving me uh, whatnot, asking me what I was doing, and I told him, well, I just asked him if he was done, but that wasn't all the truth. Be, uh, to avoid getting into trouble, I lied. I didn't tell the whole truth and avoided that situation. And that's what happens a lot of times. We fear getting into trouble, and that leads us to do sinful things. And that's what happened here. Isaac's action really made a mockery of his faith and the promise that God had made to him, I will be with you. That means I'll protect you. I'll take care of you in these situations. Don't be afraid she's your wife because I can handle the situation. I can protect you from these people. Instead of trusting God, he took matters in his own hand and he ended up being rebuked by a pagan king. 
The same thing that happened to his father, Abraham. So sometimes the sins of the fathers are visited on the children. Now, Isaac's deceit, of course, is is discovered. We find this in verse 8. Now, it came to pass when he had been there a long time. So this little ruse lasts for a while. We don't know how long, but it was a long time. Uh, uh, He was getting away with this deceit. But eventually, Abimelech, perhaps in one of his uh, upper levels of his uh, palace precinct, looked out a window, and there he sees uh, Isaac uh, showing endearment to his wife, Rebekah, in such a way that, well, you don't do this with your sister, but you would do it with your wife. And so he calls uh, him in and asks him what's going on. Interestingly, the word endearment is actually a play on Isaac's name, which means laughter. It's the same word, if you remember back the story of Ishmael mocking his little brother Isaac uh, when he was uh, uh, a boy, it it conveys a sense of Isaac uh, toying or mocking uh, in this action his own deceit and really mocking uh, his supposed faith in God using deceit rather than trusting God to get him through this situation and he's deceiving the people of the land and I think that the author is trying to bring it out here Isaac uh, uh, was uh, being ironic when you think about what his name meant now this causes a heated response on the part of Abimelech which puts in question his original thinking that he is going to be killed so someone else can have his wife. And Abimelech calls him in in verse 9 and says, quite obviously, she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And then he says, well, lest I die on account of her. Uh, You know what, men? We ought to be willing to die for our wife. (laughs) But he's not, is he? No, he says, I don't want to die for my wife, so I lied about it. Well, God wouldn't have let him die in the first place, so it's a lack of faith there. But this is what he says to Abimelech, and Abimelech says in verse 10, what is this you've done? What in the world have you done? You know, why did you do this? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought shameful guilt upon us. So Abimelech, even though he's a pagan, has some idea of decorum and how wrong this would have been, and it would have totally been out of place if everyone knew that this woman was married to Isaac. So uh, he puts in place then a command from this time forward that nobody is to touch or assault either Isaac or his wife at the penalty of death. So God uses a pagan king to rebuke the son of promise who has put into jeopardy the covenant blessing. What would have happened if someone had tried to make Rebekah his wife? Especially if this occurred before uh, uh, um, Isaac and Rebekah had children. That's going to wreck the purity of the seed, the godly line. So he put in danger the very promises God said he would fulfill in him. So faithful obedience means 
we do not act in such a way that ungodly people can point a finger at us and rebuke us for our actions. This is the New Testament com, uh, concept of blamelessness, which is a quality that helps ensure uh, God can uh, spiritually bless us and cause us to be an example to the lost because we're being obedient and nobody can point a finger at us and say we're not living the way that we ought to be living. We also see, though, as the story goes on, that these single lapses of faith do not annul God's promises. The next section reveals to us how God fulfilled his word by blessing Isaac, and it also shows us how Isaac is increasing in his faith and his walk with God. So we see now how God blesses faithful obedience in at least three ways. First of all, in verses 12 through 14, the Lord blesses Isaac while he's in this land. As the Lord blessed Abraham, so he blesses his son Isaac. We're told in verse um, 12 that Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now, we've got some farmers in here. I'm sure that you'd like to see that every single year. You reap a hundredfold of what you planted. But why did this take place? Well, because the Lord blessed him. So while he's there, he does something that uh, you don't always see this type of uh, a farmer do, and that's plant a crop. And what he, uh, what he planted, God abundantly blessed as time goes on, we're told that he began to prosper, the early stages of prosperity. Then he continues to prosper. And finally, he becomes very prosperous, the superlative term. So in this sojourn, however long it may have been, uh, probably a few years, he is just getting wealthier and wealthier, more influential and more powerful and this causes some problems. It's not without conflict that the Lord blesses him. And we find here, as all this is developing in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 14, he had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. They were jealous of this prosperity. And the verb here indicates intense jealousy that leads to hostile actions. And the hostile action on the part of the Philistines was stopping up all the wells that Abraham had dug in accordance with his treaty with Abimelech, probably this Abimelech's father or grandfather. So this was an effort on their part to prevent Isaac from watering his herd, which was especially important in arid regions, and perhaps uh, in hopes that he would move away or at least it would curb his success. But finally, we find in verse 15, as they stop up these wells uh, and fill them with earth, that Abimelech steps in, verse 16, and he says, Go away from us, for you're much mightier than we. 
So he gets kicked out of this region around the city of Gerar because he's too powerful for them. It's interesting. When he came to that place, he lied out of fear of the people. And now the Lord turns that around. And Isaac is the one who's feared by the people of Gerar. So if you trust God, he'll take care of you. He'll bless you. He'll protect you. And sometimes God's blessing on his people invokes the jealousy of others. Now, in modern times, in the church, in Christianity, it's not necessarily material blessing that we're talking about. Because not that many Christians uh, are what we would consider rich. But the fact that they can be joyful, even in uh, times of conflict, that they can be content with whatever God gives to them, that they can live righteously before God, well, sometimes that causes others to view them as holy rollers or holier than thou. And and this is kind of an example of the truth that if we do live godly, we're going to suffer persecution for Christ's sake. Now, the next thing we see here is that the Lord blesses faithful obedience despite conflict and persecution in verses 17 to 25. Sells us in verse 17, Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. All right, this is uh, uh, still in the region of the Philistines, but uh, the valley there is likely a dried up wadi that in... uh, Sometimes a torrential rainpour would come and these little valleys would become like a river. And this is in a dried up period. So he's going to settle there and apparently he's going to dig wells because to dig a well there, uh, you might be able to find water, residual water from one of these uh, floods that occurred earlier. But as he does this, there's conflict going on. Uh, We're told here that he dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father called them. So what's he doing here? As he rebuilds these wells, he's actually laying claim to the, um, the, the oath, the agreement, that Abraham had with a previous Abimelech that allowed this to go on. But after Abraham died, the Philistines are filling these wells up. They're also trying to prevent um, Isaac from redigging them. And so conflict is arising. And really, Isaac is showing that the Philistines were not keeping their word. They weren't keeping their covenant promise. So as time goes on, we have the, this, this issue of conflict. In verse 19, they continued digging wells in this valley, and they found a well of running water there. That's living water. That's an artesian well. Uh, that would be a great blessing uh, because it wouldn't run dry. But what happens? Well, the herdsmen of Gerar, which would have been Philistines, quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water's ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, which means quarrel or argument, uh, 
And oftentimes there's a circumstance around a well which will cause you to give it a certain name. This is what's happened here. Well, he moves on. He digs another well. They quarreled over that one also. So he called this name Sitna. And uh, Sitna comes from a verb that means to oppose or to be an adversary. So he names it that. And interestingly, that's the same root from which Satan is derived. And Satan, of course, is the great adversary of the saints. So wherever Isaac goes, he digs a well, he finds water, God blesses him with that, but he has to move on because of conflict. He doesn't fight over the wells. He doesn't demand his rights. He simply moves on, trusting that the Lord will take care of him at the next place. So here's an example, really, of the Lord Jesus teaching us. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, offer him the left cheek also. If someone takes your outer cloak, well, give him your tunic as well. So Isaac was a man of patience, a man of forbearance, growing in faith through this conflict and trusting the Lord to take care of him instead of quarreling and fighting over his rights, you might say. Well, finally, they come to another place, verse 22. They dig another well. There's no quarreling over this one. So he calls it Rehoboth because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means spaciousness from a uh, root word that means to make room. And the Lord gave him then room. He gave him space to live and to work without conflict. And God eventually leads us to that kind of a place. We can't really avoid conflict in this life. Uh, So we need to learn to handle it in a way that God prescribes. We do not need to be a person always demanding his or her rights. We don't have to explode every time something doesn't go the way we would like it to. We can be patient and magnanimous, forbearing with others, all the while trusting the Lord to take care of our needs. Well, all this transpires, and when he comes to this place where there's spaciousness, we find the Lord comes to him the second time in Beersheba. Okay, he he moves now to Beersheba. That relocation is uh, in the region where Abraham has peace, and Abraham names the well Beersheba. And when he goes there, the Lord appeared to him the same night, and he repeats his promise. I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I'm with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So he comes to this place, Beersheba, goes back to his roots. Apparently the famine has ended, and this is where he again connects with the blessing of his father Abraham and his faithfulness, and he's been showing uh, his own obedience to the Lord as he arrives at this particular point. And we see here, finally then, 
that the Lord blesses faithful obedience by providing peaceful relationships. Up to this point, Isaac has proven himself to be a Romans 12, 18 person, one who does all he can to live peaceably with all men. Now we're going to see that the Lord works out Proverbs 16, 7 in his life. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So we didn't read this section. So let's see what happens at the end of the story, verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends or a very close advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Now, if this person was coming to you with this entourage, what would be going through your mind? Okay, uh, here's uh, the king. Here's one of his close advisors. There may have been other people involved there as well. And you recognize the person who's the general of the army. So is he coming for a war or is he coming for peace? What's the deal? Well, Isaac kind of doesn't trust what's going on here in verse 27. He says, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? So what's he got to go on? Well, you kicked me out of your land. Your servants have been arguing with me over well rights as uh, I left the land. So what's your purpose? Why are you coming? You haven't shown yourself to be a friend, but an enemy. Well, here we see that uh, the Lord apparently has been working uh, in Abimelech's heart and mind because he comes for the purpose of peace. Verse 28, but they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. And then if you look down at the last part of verse 29, you are now the blessed of the Lord. And look at the name of God that he uses. It's the covenant name, Yahweh, the the true God, the real God, the covenant God. He's recognizing the God of Isaac, as a God who is blessing Isaac, you can't get around it. I would be really smart if I made peace with this man. And that's exactly what he does. He says, back up in verse 28, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you and us, and that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. Well, that's not exactly true. But he's glossing that uh, in order to make peace with Abraham because apparently they don't want to to receive any harm from him. It almost seems like they're bargaining from a lower position with someone they regard who is in a higher position because Yahweh is blessing him and everything we've tried to do to remove or reduce that blessing hasn't worked. So we need to make peace. And that's what they do here. Well, verse 30, uh, Abraham, or excuse me, Isaac uh, prepares a feast, which means he agrees with doing this. 
and they ate and drank. And, and when you, you formed a covenant, this is usually what you did. Uh, you would provide a feast. You would sit down together. You'd have a meal. That is an indication of, of a desire for peaceful relationships and friendship. Uh, and then they rose up and they swore an oath with one another. So here's a covenant being made. Isaac sends them away. They departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came. They told him about the well which they had dug. And he said, we found water. So again, the Lord's blessing him in this place. And they called it Sheba. He renames this the the city of Sheba or Beersheba. That's what Abraham named the well. And now this means, again, the, uh, the well of the seven or the well of the oath, same place a previous covenant had been made with the Philistines. So uh, everything comes around now where even those who had been at enmity with him come to him and make this uh, covenant of peace. So here we see another life lesson And that is that the way we live should impact others in such a way that they recognize God is with us and that we live under his gracious blessings. And this can only happen when we determine to live faithful and obedient lives in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Well, salvation is the greatest blessing of life. It begins when we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, realizing that only through his sacrifice do we have remission of sin. And then that faith begins to grow and develop as we learn to obey his word. We're not always going to be successful, even as Abraham and Isaac were not. There were some flops, there were some failures, there were some sin. But we learn from those failures We continue to move forward in faith and obedience so we can grow and experience more blessings from the Lord and be more pleasing in his sight. And among these are a a heritage of faith that we can hand down to successive generations to respond in faith rather than fear when we find ourselves in difficult situations to realize that God uh, can use conflict to help us trust him in a greater way, to resist the temptation to demand our rights rather than being kind and forbearing with others, and to do all we can to live in peace with others so that even our enemies recognize God's hand upon us, and so we need to be like Christ, in all these different ways. Not so much Abraham and Isaac, but as they portrayed these uh, obedient actions, they were being like Christ before his time. Now we have even more um, ways that we can act like Christ. We have the word of God in our hands. We have the spirit of God in our hearts. And so we can live in this way before the world a life of faith and obedience. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning as we observe uh, these actions in the life of Isaac. Help us to realize that through the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we can be the same kind of person. And really, Lord, is being like the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us each day to exercise our faith and our obedience to your word and be an example to others that they can follow. And Lord, so that we can stay in the midst of your blessings that come from salvation. So bless us, Lord, with these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.